I'm a big fan of uh, Harrison Ford's portrayal of Indiana Jones. Uh, I like the movies, the adventure of it all. I suppose my favorite uh, line out of the movies is when he is going after, uh, if somebody asked him in, in going after the enemy, you know, what are we going to do next? And this is, I like it so much that I really want it written on my tombstone. Uh, he said to the person, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm making this up as I go. That kind of coins my life pretty well. I'm not sure what's going on tomorrow. I'll kind of make it up as it goes. We have in Scripture a very uh, close uh, likeness to an Indiana Jones experience in Genesis chapter 14. I believe it is. So take a look at Genesis chapter 14. And it's one of the more fascinating uh, insights into this Abraham. Uh, we tend to think he's an old guy, and which I'm sure he was in his 80s and 90s at this point, but still spry enough to get a bunch of guys together and go whoop some kings. Uh, I'm not going to labor the chapter in reading the entire things, uh, all, all the events. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it for two particular reasons. The meat of the passage is at the end of the chapter. And second reason, I just don't want to pronounce all those names. <laughs> Although you'd like to see me struggle through it, I'm not going to do it. Yes, no. Uh, okay, I'll do the first weird name in the chapter. Okay, look at chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amphrath... I guess you're happy now. Okay, let's, let's uh, skip to the uh, story itself. There was in this time in Palestine, or Palestine, Israel, the area, Abram had been there for a number of years now, and he had, was a nomad. Uh, he took his family that uh, was numbered in the hundreds on journeys up and down. Uh, he joined some confederations. Uh, there, were, there, weren't a, there wasn't a united kingdom in that area. There were city-states with warlords and, and what the scripture calls kings. Uh, Abram could almost be referenced as a king in his own lot um, in the chapter. But the battle goes on like this, that there were five kings of the south uh, who basically, if you look at, um, to kind of tell you what's going on, look at, look at chapter... 14 verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. Uh, Twelve years they, the five kings of the south, had served uh, Chidor Lodner, uh, who was the head king of four kings in the north. Now when it says that they served him, they, it meant they basically sent money to him, tribute to him, servants to him kind of were enslaved to the four kings in the north, the five kings were. Well, the five kings got tired of the taxes. You ever been tired of paying your taxes? Well, they decided they're not going. They got froggy one day and decided we're not paying them anymore. Well, the four kings, uh, warlords, if you will, um, didn't like that. So they came south and they began to rummage the cities, the towns, decimating them. And archaeologists have well documented this raid in that when they left the land that they had conquered, it was cemetery, it was bricks and mortar, there was nothing left. And they began to work themselves down to these five kings. 
Well, the, the big battle took place um, in the Valley of Siddim in verse 8. You'll see that. And they joined the battle in the Valley of Siddim. There's five kings, verses 4. The four kings are mentioned in verse 9. And, um, and then in verse 10, now the Valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, which were slime pits. This was down in the, uh, the Salt Sea area. And notice the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were among the five. And they got whooped pretty good. They got beat. And it says that they fled in verse 10. And some fell unto them and the rest fled to the, the hill country. So the enemy, the four kings of the north that beat the five kings of the south in this slime pit area, they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They took their women, they took their children, they took stuff out of the city, they got their tribute, they got their taxes, they wiped the cities out. They're happy. It's a good day. And it would have been a good day, but they took one too many families when they went. Look at verse 12. This is where their trouble begins. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who at this time was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way, thinking it was an absolute perfect day, a good day, a day they could go home and write good history of, of victories and spoils. They could brag to their grandchildren of this day. You ever have a day that was just a wonderful day, and then the end of it just destroys the whole thing? I was telling somebody the other day when we were out in California looking at the Redwoods, we had the most magnificent day. The traffic was, there was no one on the mountains, hills, roads. The, tra- the weather was beautiful. The shoreline was incredible. The Redwoods were breathtaking. Karen and I spent the day in a rented vehicle that we enjoyed. and I mean, it was almost one of those days you'd like to, you know, what's that movie that he wakes up every day to the Groundhog Day? It was a Groundhog Day for us until I came down off the hill onto a straightaway near the town where we were thinking, and a California state trooper was coming the other way, and I must have jettapulted myself a little fast, and he ruined my whole day. Well, this, is, this was kind of the way it was. They took Lot, thinking all was good. Well, look how the story unfolds. Here comes Indiana Jones in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came to Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time the name or word Hebrew is found in the Bible. No one knows really where the word came from. It seems to mean passenger or one who passes by. Uh, But there's no definitive origin for this word. Uh, Probably it has reference to Abram never having a property and a place that he passed through. He constantly was on the move, like believers are supposed to be in this world. So so you got Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Memory, the Amorite, the brother of Escrow and Amner. These are the allies. They were friends and allies of Abram. So when Abram heard that his kinsman, his, his nephew, had been taken captive, he basically said he got what he deserved. No. Interesting. Abram is a picture of the spiritual. Lot is the picture of the believer living in the world. Lot's getting what he deserved, does he, is he not? But when you're really spiritual, and the 
when Christ is in you. There's a gentle love for those who, even though they may be getting what they deserve, you still have a love and compassion. You know it's the love of Christ in you when you can't explain why you're loving someone who should not be loved at a given time. That's when you know it's his love. A lot of Abram at this point could have gone, have, have a nice time in your new country, Lot. I hope things are going well for you. He could have responded, you know, like Dr. Phil. How's that working out for you? But he doesn't. Look at the spiritual man here. The man who's willing to go rescue someone who got what they deserved. I love this story. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been captive, he led forth his trained men. Born in his house, he had 318 of them. He went as far as Dan. Dan did not exist at this point. This is a history being written hundreds of years after. And for the, for the present people reading it, they understood where the tribe of Dan lived. And so he references Dan, which Dan wasn't even born then. Interesting. So Abram takes 318 of his trained soldiers. Now think of that. Abram was a man of faith, believed in God. And yet he had trained soldiers who were able to fight. Like the old Civil War soldier said, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Yeah. Trust in God and keep a gun handy if you need one. That's what Abram did. He had men who could actually fight. Now there's a time to pray and there's a time to release the hounds. <laughs> And this is time to release the hounds. Prayer at this point may not bring Lot back. But prayer and the trained soldiers did a pretty good job. There's evidence later on that Abram talked to the Lord before he ever sent those men out. He made a promise to the Lord. You'll see it later that if anything's taken, he won't take anything of the spoils. So he talked to the Lord, and then he sent his men. I love this. 318. Now you, got to, you have to know that four kings have a whole lot more than 318 men. Okay? This is one of those Gideon stories of Gideon's 300. Because 318 with the Lord is bigger than 5,000 without him. Okay? It just is. God doesn't do math like we do math. And his portion is always bigger. God on the man's side is always outnumbers. When I sat down with those 23 atheists in that classroom, you know they were outnumbered. I was all by myself, but they were outnumbered. At times I felt very sorry for them in the debate. There were times I felt sorry for myself, but uh, most of the time I pitied them because they were ignorant and didn't know the truth. They're outnumbered. God in one man is always a majority. And so God in 300 is a whopping, whopping fighting force. And so take a look at verse 15. Not only with Abram smart in having men that he had trained to fight, he was also smart in the art of war. Look at what he does. He divides his forces against them and he attacks at night. That's smart. These men were possibly battle-weary, they were possibly enjoying the spoils, perhaps, of war. Perhaps they were reveling in their victory and letting their guard down. It's nighttime, big parties on. He divides his forces perhaps six or seven times. Comes at them from different angles. Now, in the dark, you don't know how many are attacking you. Do you? 
They're coming in from every angle. It might be thousands, or it might be 318. You're just not quite sure in the dark. Look what happens. He defeats them. Not only does he defeat them, he pursues them. He pursues them to Hobah, north of Damascus. He chases them out of the area. I'll never forget the day a, a a red pit bull came into my front yard. He was a young fella. He was very strong and powerful. His jaws could clamp down and and break Oscar's head in half. And I noticed Oscar saw him in his front yard, and I thought, this is the day that my dog dies in front of me. And Oscar lowered his head and charged the red pit bull. You know, a Jack Russell doesn't know how little he is. He's a man's dog that can be small. He charged that pit bull, and I thought, this is the end. He's going to kill him right here. That pit bull looked at him, turned tail, and Oscar chased him down the (laughs) cul-de-sac. He not only kicked him out of his yard, he chased him out of the cul-de-sac. That's what good armies do. They don't defeat you on the spot. They defeat you and chase you out of their backyard. It is a resounding victory. Armies today don't know how to do that. Okay, enough of that. So, let's look at verse 16. Then he brought back the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot. I wonder if they had a conversation on the way home. With his possessions and the women and the people. He brought them all back. Wow, that's Indiana Jones right there, isn't it? But the meat of the passage begins in verse 17. This is two kings that show up. First of all, after his return from the defeat of Sidor Lomer and the kings who were with him, the first king that shows up is the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shevev, that is, the king's valley. Now, as the king of Sodom was walking out to meet him, There's another king that comes in, okay? One is going to picture something in our lives, and the the next king is going to picture something completely different. You can only only choose one king. You know that. Uh, Lorelai was taking her nap this afternoon, and before the nap, Karen said to her, when you get up, you can have a piece of strawberry pie or ice cream. She said, she said, Kiki, I'll have both because I don't know which one is better. Good answer. There are two kings. One of them is decidedly better. Look at the king who shortcuts the king of Sodom and shows up on the scene before him. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Parentheses, he is the priest of the Most High God. And he, the priest, blessed him, Abram. We'll see what he says in just a moment. Now, I want you to think about Melchizedek. He, by his very name, his name means the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness. His title means the king or priest of peace. They always go in that order. 
The Bible has a lot to say about Melchizedek. There's a lot of mystery surrounded by Melchizedek. Psalm 110 says that after the order, that the Lord will come after the order or the means or path of the priest line of Melchizedek, not Levi. The Hebrew spends an awful lot of time talking about the superior priesthood of Melchizedek himself. Who was this man? I'll spend a few minutes about the mystery. I won't give you any satisfying answers because there aren't any. Hebrews talks about having not an end of days or beginning of days. Uh, it talks about having neither father nor mother. There's one of two ways you can look at that. And, and, and theologians have been so strange as to, as to believe this Melchizedek was some kind of UFO guy, some guy from outer space. It goes that weird. Yes, it does. You can look at that one, other, one of two ways. Either this was a man, which Hebrews says it was a man. Of course, Christ was a man, was he not? Either he was that his mother and father were never named. In a book of Genesis, where you have genealogies all over the place, everybody knows everybody's mother and father, but Chelsedek shows up with no listed name of a mother and father. He had one, but it's never just listed. In the book of Genesis, where you find out he begat him and he begat her, and you find out births and dates and births and dates. Now, Melchizedek, nothing recorded about the birth, and he had one, just wasn't recorded. The other way that theologians look at this is this is a pre-incarnate um, theophany of the appearance of Christ. That when it says he had no beginning or end, it's because he was a pre-incarnate vision or appearing of Christ himself. No mother and father, a priest forever. I'll let you to chew that over. I'll leave that to you. What would my preference mean to you, really? Would you like to know my preference? I think he was a man. I think the first view. But I don't fall out with anybody who views the second view. It could be either one. Having said that, look back at the, look at the, back at the passage. The important thing isn't who he was necessarily. It was the fact that he brought bread and wine to Abram. Abram didn't have to do anything to receive that bread and wine. The blessing came because the priest showed up. Now follow, follow my train of thought. Grace says this. Grace says this. Simply receive because I am the giver. Law says this. If you do certain things, you will be blessed. Law says there's this big reaping and sowing kind of thing. If you pray, the heavens will open. If you do this, if you do that, then God will move. But I find Melchizedek showing up and all he had in his hand was bread and wine. And he blessed Abram. Blessings do not come because you do anything. Blessings come for grace because God is good and God is loving. And the only thing that holds back the blessings of his grace is you not believing that he's got them in his hand to give to you. Faith. Faith, faith. This is, this is the order of the priesthood of which we serve. 
I cannot tell you the Christians who labor under the, the Levitical priesthood today who are doing things to be blessed when they're already in a condition of... I'm going to tell you the difference is night and day. The opponents of the priesthood of Melchizedek are within the family of God who don't understand the true grace of God. Notice he says to Abram, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Bless you, Abram. Not because you killed five, four kings. Not because of anything that you did. It just says, blessed be you. Isn't that beautiful? That's grace. That's the grace of God through Melchizedek. And Paul says, well, whoever wrote Hebrews says, that's the one you're going to follow right there. Notice he says, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Notice the response. The law says, give a tenth and God will bless. Grace says, you're already blessed fully and causes you to spontaneously respond How did they respond? Abram gave a tenth of everything. Everything. Isn't that beautiful? Nobody had to manipulate him to pull it out of him. Nobody had to charm him and convince him this was the path of the will of God. The Chalcedic didn't even ask for a tenth. He just gave it. Isn't that beautiful? That's the response of a free life. A soul that is free. A Christianity that is response, responding. It is spontaneous obedience. Amen. Not done because some preacher said it or some teacher said it or you feel pressured or you feel backed in the corner. Christianity is not 80-20. God gives, and, but you got to respond. It's 100% the giving of God. All we are to do is receive, receive, receive. The beautiful thing is, we respond to that receiving naturally. Those who counter and those who oppose this teaching of grace say this, that it is a a position of non-activity. It is posturing people to sit and be lazy and do nothing. I suggest to you that it is completely the opposite. That it creates a soul... They can't stop giving and can't stop loving and can't stop rescuing the lots of your life and can't stop ministering, can't stop walking the extra mile and turning the other cheek. Nobody's pushing you to do that. You just receive so much from Christ that you just can't, you can't help yourself. Notice the second king in verse 21. The king of Sodom, he shows up, probably after the other king had left, and said to Abram, he's, he's going to broker a deal, give me the persons, take the goods to yourself. That's, that's what the world always does. That's a fair deal, is it not? Take all the goods. You got, you, give me the people, you take the goods. That's, you know what that is? That's reasonable Christianity. That's, 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 mentally, it's, that makes sense, does it not? That's a fair offer from, from the king of Sodom. But Christianity isn't about making sense and doing reasonable things. 
It's about a God who loads you so full of his blessings, you can't help but give out to everything. But if you're in that mentality of law, you sow and then you reap and sow your seed and give to this ministry and do this and pray like this and witness for, you know, just, just do and do and do and then God will bless you. See the mentality here? Give me the persons. You take the goods. Notice Abram's response in verse 22. But Abram said to the, God, the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand. I've made a promise to the Lord God most high. Notice how he defines him. The possessor of heaven and earth. You worried about these, these goods you want me to keep? I serve a God who owns the whole deal. I don't, I don't need your, your little stuff over here. I don't need your pile of junk. I serve a God who owns the whole package. I can't be bought with money. I could care less of the stuff you're trying to give me. Notice what he says. He's quite clear. That I would not, I told the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. You're going to go brag, you know. Yeah, Abram's a great man because I loaded him up. Abram would have no man possess him because he was possessed of God. Let no man ever possess you. Let no man ever dominate you. God owns you. Let no man over you control you. It is God that you serve. Fear no man. Fear nothing. 